objectively or subjectively, it's up to you. Would you say that foot and ankle orthopedics is the hardest of the orthopedics? So I've heard hands pretty hard, but being a podiatrist, the foot and ankle just seems, well, probably the foot so it's it just seems super I, complex with all the joints yeah. in there. Mm, I mean, look, it's hard, right? You've got to realise there's not many of us, right? If you mm. actually look and try and find foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons, there's not that many. And that's not because there's not much work. There's heaps of work, right? Um, it is, well, look, it's harder, I reckon it's harder than, say, hip and knee surgery, right? Mm. The hip and knee surgeons have got these operations that work really well. They've got a, like, 90 95% success rate. Mm. They can do it over and over and over, the same operation over and over again with a knee replacement. Most part, you do the same steps over and over. So you get really, really good at it really fast. Um, foot and ankle, the foot's got, what, 28 bones in it, right? Um, you do something in one thing, it often sets off a problem in another area, uh, and the surgeries are all very different. No foot's, I mean, you would see this, plate, right? No mm. foot's the same. A no. flat foot's never the same. A high arch foot's never the same. Even Achilles is never the same. So mm. um, I think it's much more challenging, say, than a hip and knee surgery. Mm. I didn't particularly enjoy upper limb surgeries and orthopedics. I, didn't, I, still, do, I still do fractures. Yeah. Uh, I think those surgeries, you know, shoulder surgery and hand surgery is difficult in its own right. Mm. Um, so I can't say this, it's, it's harder than those. And spine surgery as well, you're dealing with this big spinal cord, which is, yeah. you know, you injure it, it's big complications. So uh, look, I reckon it's, it's up there, whether it's the hardest, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> but it's definitely difficult. And the thing is, is the operations we've got, you know, the success rate is never up at the 90, 95% success rate as compared to a hip and knee surgery, like ACLs, total knees, total hips, like total knees and total hips are probably the most successful operations ever invented mm. to date. Right. So, um, in, in, you know, in regards to those surgeries, no, it's, it, it's got to be harder than that. Well, I know it's yeah. harder than that. Yeah. yeah. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but tell us yeah. your, your ideal patient. So the, the ideal injury walking through your door, what would that be? I, I, like, I really like sports injuries, right? That's my thing. Like uh, when I was in Brisbane, the guys I work with, they, they deal with a lot of sports injuries. That's my, that's the stuff I like seeing. And mm. particularly like, my area of interest in osmosis injuries, right? I reckon yeah. it's, um, it's funnily enough, like as an orthopedic registrar in my training, I didn't see one that wasn't associated with a fracture. I was never looking for it, right? Um, we actually don't, you don't get any training on that. Funnily enough, all the orthopedic surgeons that are coming through in Australia, they don't get any training specifically on a soft tissue syndesmosis injury. Mm -hmm. So my ideal patient is actually like a 24-year-old, uh, let's say Newcastle Knights player that's yeah. injured, his, you know, injured his syndesmosis on the weekend, you know, been yeah. picked out by the NRL physios, his mechanism injury on a video, so I can easily see it. And, um, you know, take him for a scope and, and you know, stabilise mm -hmm. his syndesmosis. And they do really well. And I, you know, that's my, that's my sort of thing that I really like, enjoy seeing, I guess. It's not super hard surgery, but it's the mm. interesting patients they rehab well. Oh, yeah. I was reading like, and on your bio on your website, which is um, hunterfootandankle.com.au, you know, your, mm. your training, your background, like you've worked obviously over in Canada, but up in Queensland with a lot of, I'm assuming foot and ankle orthopedic surgeons that have a huge yeah. sporting background. So they've obviously trained yeah. them and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't sit here and say, look, I directly treated it, you know, Queensland, North Queensland Cowboy or something, mm. but I work with the guys that treated them and as a mm. result, I learned how they do things with those, with those players and I've been able to extrapolate them to professional athletes here in Newcastle, which is great. And yeah. then, yeah, look, I, I just enjoy seeing those type of patients, to, to be honest. That's not to say I don't enjoy the rest of the neck surgery, but they're, mm. they're the things that I really like. And I think it's like, because there's most injuries, underestimated injury mm. and um, very difficult to pick up and there's heaps of research that probably still to come mm. on treating those, those injuries. Yeah. When I was writing these questions out to you, I had a bunch on syndesmosis and I was like, oh, no, we'll save that one for another time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll keep that okay. in mind and we'll, we'll, come, we'll cool. come back to all the syndesmosis stuff. 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll start off what I think quite easy or easy yeah. for you. Um, we had a, a question come in asking about an accessory navicular bone. So yeah. it's been removed, yeah. the likelihood of it growing back because this person's feeling like they're starting to get a little bit of extra or starting to get a little bit pain or starting to get pain back in that area, which is on the inside yeah. of the foot, top of the arch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, I, to be honest, I'm not happy seen any that actually come back but i've definitely seen patients that have developed had uh, i've seen a few nipples for instance um, that have had an accessory navicular removed when they were a teenager and then sort of presenting their sort of mid-20s uh early 30s uh with pain over the over the medial side of their of their foot mm. um now the accessory navicular comes in all different types right you can have a very small one or you can have a really big overgrowth and as a surgeon, it's actually a bit challenging as to how to remove, you know, when it's like how much to remove in some cases. So if you've got like a little, a little piece, that's that's pretty simple. But if you've got a big overgrowth, you feel like you're taking an awful lot of the navicular out when you're doing the doing the surgery. Um, if the patient's got some repeat pain, I suspect either there's still some left, mm. or they might have something to go with the accessory navicular. So some patients will have a flat foot. Or a mm. well, have some tip post tibialis posterior symptoms with the accessory navicular, and so that's what I would actually be looking at probably more closely. Mm. I doubt it's actually come back, right? Yeah. So most accessory bones you take out in the body, they're not going to reform. Mm. Uh, so I suspect you know. So the operation usually involves you take it out, you grab the, the tibialis posterior tendon, and you you basically put something called a suture anchor in, which is almost like a screw. Yeah. Um, and out of that screw type thing is some stitches and that reattaches in the navicular. Uh, so some patients, like the ones that I've seen that have come back with pain and they are challenging, mm. um, it's usually something I've to do with the tip post tendon or the fact that there's still a fair bit of, over, like still a bit of overhang of the accessory navicular, which means you've got to be more aggressive in, in taking it out. In saying that, um, I, when I started my practice, I was very aggressive about taking them out. And over time, I've become less confident in that operation. Mm. And so I actually work quite hard in trying to treat them non-operative, but much more aggressively trying to get them sort of in a non-operative um, approach. Obviously, yeah. surgery is always there, right? Um, but for these people who have been born with this, you'll find, you know, you'll see ex lots of x-rays in patients for other reasons mm. that have mm. an accessory navicular and no pain, right? And that's that's yeah. the mystery of foot and surgery. You know, you can have an osteochondral lesion of the talus and have zero pain. Right, mm. but then you've got these other patients that have horrible pain. So, um, look, I, I would heavily go and even in this patient, we've got to, if they've got weak finger regrowth, they probably need an X-ray and they probably need, they need an MRI to look at the tibialis posterior tendon to begin yeah. with. And then whoever's treating them else has to look at overall how their foot is. Right? Yeah. Got a flat foot. There might be another reason for their pain. I guess if you're removing a bone, then it has potential to kind of change them or alter their biomechanics. So then you would oh, be loading absolutely. tissues differently yeah. and things and the pop up. Yeah, the tip post tendon is very sensitive to any change in its length, right? Mm. So you only need a couple of millimetres and change the length of the tip post tendon for, for the mechanics of that tendon to be greatly affected mm. as well, right? So that also worries me as a surgeon um, taking this piece out and then reattaching it, right? Ten your tendency is to over-tighten it because you don't want to put it loose because you think that's going to cause much more, much more of a problem. Mm. But you still, you still always worry about when you're reattaching a tendon knowing how much tension exactly you need to put it in. Right, there's yeah. not a that's an experience thing. That's there's not a magic, magic way of doing it. Right? We don't have. Do you that mean yet. like anyway. tendinopathy? Is that what you're sort of implying, or, or so, what yeah, yeah. So well, tendon can either be inflamed or it can have a long degenerative process potentially. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I say, look, be honest. If you have this, 
we've had that operation initially, um, I'd say to most people, it might be 12 months before you get a complete cessation of pain, mm. right? Because um, you, because you're taking out the piece of bone and that's causing inflammation in the surgery itself. Mm. You're reattaching the tendon. It takes a while for that tendon to bed back in. Um, and you're also sticking some sutures in the tendon, which promotes the response as well. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, we talk about <laughs> like with patients, you know, giving them a new exercise, there's some risks associated with that. And then mm. for you always talking about, you know, attendant transfer risks. It's funny the perspective exactly. between each profession, but that's, yeah. um, I did want to ask, and it's probably the theme with all these questions and it's a common thing that we get asked all the time and, and probably lucky where we work. For other people that probably don't have access to, to talk with someone like yourself or sports doctors or, or doctors and things like that, when, when do you think a referral is, is warranted or more so an opinion is warranted and using this case as, as an example, if, if someone comes back in the clinic and you've tried that non-operatively, you know, is it, is it a time thing or if it's, you know, if you only get it to a, a two out of three and they're like, you know, it's worth an opinion, what would you recommend for someone? Are you talking about this particular case or just in general? Yeah, it probably in general, I would in think. General? Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's a tricky one because it depends, it's going to depend a little bit. Um, so for instance, you, like you and Kelly, uh, you know, reasonably experienced clinicians now, right? You've been doing this for a while. So you, I imagine if you've got a case, if you're pretty confident in the diagnosis, mm. um, then for, for you guys, for instance, like I would be, you know, extending your non-operative treatment as far as you think you can get. Mm. That might be, say, for instance, most things are be two to three months, right? Mm. Most things are going to show some, and you want to see some improvement in that time. And if you're not getting there, then you've got to think, well, okay, do I have my diagnosis right? Uh, or, or is this patient just not uh, getting better purely because non-operative treatment is not, you know, not working? And I would say, yeah, if you're if you're a starting clinician, then you've got to you've got to be a bit more careful. Or if you feel like you don't have a lot of knowledge on a topic, mm. then you've got to be a little bit more careful. I mean, I surgeons in general, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be turning down referrals because we think it's beneath us. Or, you know, we, we're lucky that we've got got the knowledge we've got. And some like a lot of my practice. Uh, it's interesting. Your your speaker from London was saying his his conversion rates like five to ten percent to an operation. Good. Mine's exactly the same. Yeah. I see so many patients, and I go for sometimes one or two weeks without booking an operation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm and I consult him like two or three days a week minimum. Um. And so a lot of those patients just want one single opinion. They've been referred by a physio, a podiatrist, GP, mm. and you just say, "Yep, what they're doing is fine." Right. Mm. I agree. Don't need an operation. This is the diagnosis. So. But I guess if you're, if you're an inexperienced clinician, if you're not sure, you either ask one of your experienced colleagues, right? Or if you really feel like you're out of your depth, then, you know, you, like if your surgeon's approachable, you just give them a call, you send them a text, mm. right? Um, mm. Not everyone's like that, obviously, right? Yeah. But, but an early referral in those cases is absolutely fine just to check, you know, what you're doing. It inspires confidence in the patient as well, mm. right? Mm. If you've got the clinicians all saying the same thing, then that certainly helps. I think, but I think for experienced clinicians, GPs, physios, uh, podiatrists that are confident in their diagnosis and confident in their non-operative management, then a two or three month period would probably be appropriate. Mm. There's, but that that's you know, it's a difficult question to answer because there's things yeah. that are going to be appropriate. Not, for instance, an Achilles tendon rupture. Mm. If that's going bad within the first yeah. couple of weeks, you're not waiting six you, months you, for that one. You hold you hold on for two or three months. That makes my surgery much harder, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's you know, it's, it's a bit injury dependent as well. Mm. Yeah, yep. good answer. Yeah, good. I'm going to clip that because we always talk about that. Like either, you know, the, the diagnosis may be wrong or there's just a treatment or something that you can't offer. And there's no harm in getting an opinion. And I think oh, I'm glad you mentioned the conversion rate because 
the people that we've talked to, they were under the impression, you know, that everyone that sees your orthopedic surgeon, they're just going to get yeah, surgery or, or an ankle fusion or like a triple arthrodesis. And it's like, it's likely just to be an opinion and then go, yep, yeah. everything you're doing is fine. You don't need to see me. Again. Where do you think that yeah. that sort of misconception comes from, Steve? Uh, well, I also wonder whether, I mean, that's for an ankle surgery, right? Mm. So like, like I said to you guys about the, the success rate of the operations, they're not bad, but they're not, they're not as good as hip and knee replacements, right? Mm. So my colleague, I, I work with two hip and knee surgeons. Their conversion rate would be quadruple mine, mm. possibly even 40, 50%, right? Mm. And that's because knee arthritis, hip arthritis, hopefully out there, their non-operative treatment is reasonably well known, right? Mm. And so when they're getting the patient, they're ready for surgery, right? Mm. Um, I do think also because we weren't as probably as good at non-operative treatment maybe 20 years ago. I might be completely wrong. You guys might kiss me a mouth. No, no, you're right. You're right. We're giving out stretches and things. Yeah, but <laughs> but but um, I think we've sort of learned over like I, I guess people used to see surgeons and 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 we just we, like some of these operations, like people were getting triple arthrodesis for all sorts of things, yeah, right? Um, and they're getting done differently to what they are now mm. as well, right? People used to get just get well, I don't want to say everybody, but some patients were just getting fused in the position that their foot was in. So this horrible flat foot and they were just fused in that position and they end up hating that operation. So you end up these operations get these horrible names attached to them, right, that they yeah. shouldn't be done. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to put a finger on. Definitely I know from the colleagues I work with that you can't, you, you, you will stop getting referrals mm -hmm. if you are that young home when you're operating on everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is your complication rate will go up through the roof mm -hmm. because if you're operating on patients that don't need it, you are ultimately going to be asking for trouble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and, and the hardest part of surgery, funnily enough, is not actually the surgery itself, it's the decision making, mm -hmm. right? And particularly in for neck surgery. But the things that get me up at night is, is not whether I can do the surgery or not, it's whether these sort of steps that I'm going to do in the operation are the right things for this patient because I don't have a patient that's awake and walking when I'm doing the surgery, right? So, uh, so I, I guess that doesn't really answer your question. I can't, I can't put a finger on it, but definitely yeah. the good, good surgeons I know don't do that. And I wouldn't mm. say there's many surgeons out there that would be just operating on everybody. Mm. Um, whether that's a market pressure thing in some places, you have a saturation of surgeons in certain areas of Australia. Mm. Sydney would be one, right? Where surgeons like everyone else have to make money, yeah, right? Yeah. To live. Yeah. Now, if you have a lot of surgeons in a small area, now I'm not saying this is for neck surgery, this is just surgeons in general. Mm. Um, there's actually been studies that show that the operation rate goes up. Wow. Right. So it's I think, uh, I yeah. yeah. So I can't remember if it was in Adelaide or about 10, 15 years ago, the, the Australian Orthopedic Association looked at looked at some numbers and mm. in I think it was in Adelaide because I think Adelaide had a high concentration of orthopedic surgeons, the knee arthroscopy rate was much higher in that city yeah, than elsewhere, crazy. right? So um but with it, I mean there's a whole lot of compounding factors, compounding factors to that. But but that that may be where some of that's come from. But I don't know, it's a tricky that's a tricky one to answer. But definitely like a good surgeon unfortunately like we love operating rather mm. than you know I've got to say I like operating the most out of my job. It's mm. the most fun part. Um, but but I hate complications and I hate things going wrong for the patient. And so that's why why the conversion rate is so low because you're really trying to pick the right patient yeah. in surgery. Right? I wonder if we had like a big group of podiatrists, there'd be heaps of custom orthotics getting given out similar thing. <laughs> study on that. <laughs> maybe, you know, like maybe. Wouldn't so, you know, yeah, like I guess, and that's the other, I mean, that's the other thing. You see, you know, 
allied health and surgeons, everyone's trying to sort of skill up or add extra skills mm. to their bow as well because it's because it's a market. Unfortunately, health yeah, is a business. It's a, yeah, it is a right? business. All right, Kel, you want to ask this this question? I'm keen for this one. It'd be interesting. This is another listener question that we had sent through, yeah? Yeah. 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 Um, so we have an elite snowboarder who has congenital vertical talus and has been told is required to have a triple ankle fusion and Achilles lengthening. He wants to know what he should do to make sure he's right pre-surgery and what other advice you would give. Which we know is hard because you don't have the context and it's a couple of lines and surgery yeah. is very complex, but I mean, general yeah. advice. Yeah, right. So that, that's like a real left field one, right? Mm. Like that's like congenital vertical talus is like rare, like really rare. So like that would be picked up when you're born, essentially. Mm. That's like congenital. Mm. So patient have a rock and bottom, rock and bottom foot. Um, so they have a very, you know, very flat foot, but their heel is actually in the quinus. It's actually sitting up to all these patients. Their heel actually won't touch the ground. Um, and often the tailor head's actually sticking out on the bottom of the foot. So um, the question for this, like, the fact that this patient's actually got to be an elite snowboarder, mm-hmm. say snowboarder, yeah, yeah, is amazing, actually, right? So, like, the fact that they're just at that level is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a tricky one because the pathology is tricky, the pathology is rare, mm-hmm. and the surgery is big, right? So, triple fusion means you're fusing the three main joints of the hind foot of the foot, which are responsible for almost all the movement of the foot, right? So... Yeah, this this patient, if he's got a congenital vertical talus, he might have had surgery when he was a kid, depending on where he where he is. Like most patients would have surgery when they're a baby. They might have some pla- some plastering initially, um, and then surgery to correct the position of the talus. Uh, or they used to actually release a whole lot of ligaments around the foot to actually reposition the talus. So we've gotten better at that. That would be done in a specialist pediatric orthopedic center, at least in Australia, right? So it's not a, like definitely I wouldn't be operating on kids. Yeah. That, that problem um, but we do i've only myself i've maybe only seen two as adults um ever right uh, and i probably haven't seen any in the last two years mm-hmm. so they're not they're not um they're not commonly out there as for the patient what he can do for before to help him with surgery i mean what you guys have talked about previously in other podcasts anyone leading up to surgery the more strength they can get the more tissue capacity they can get the better their outcome is going to be post-surgery right the more you know they get because surgery is going to result in you having muscle wasting you're going to lose some proprioception uh, recovery for this surgery is going to be 12 months mm-hmm. like minimum right he's going to be possibly six to eight weeks or more before he's walking on the foot but i always have my advice this patient would be actually really nailing down from the surgeon what they think is going to happen after the surgery mm-hmm. right so well i said i really like operating with athletes they're really tricky when it comes to pathology like this Mm-hmm. right because a triple arthrodesis, a triple fusion if the surgeon's doing it properly they're going to alter the mechanics of his foot significantly like alter the shape of his foot significantly right um that and if he's an elite snowboarder he's been getting away with this type of foot for a long period of time all of a sudden his foot's going to feel different in the boot it's going to look different in the boot um and i would be saying to this patient look i don't know if you're going to get back to snowboarding if I'm being honest, right? The main reason for this operation is actually to relieve pain. That's its that's its job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everything else on top of that is a bit of a bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the that's for him for the, him or her whoever's asking this question is really nailing down what they what the expectations are postoperatively more so even than doing any preoperative rehab anything like that because um, 
things like range of motion and things are not going to preoperatively are not going to make a difference because he's going to have quite a stiff foot anyway. Yeah. But yeah. the more strength he has in the calf, lower limb, that's going to be helpful. But but uh, but he really needs to be sure what he's the patient's got to really be sure what they're getting themselves into. I, I would say probably the surgery is going to be appropriate because they wouldn't really be in this, like most patients in their twenties if they've had this problem, they're probably going to have pain, possible callosities, um, difficult to function, but is but they're functioning obviously functioning pretty well through elite snowboarder. So they just got to weigh that up. How bad are their symptoms now? Because I would say there's a possibility that they may not get back to doing what they like doing mm. or even at the same level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just got to be an honest conversation. So the patient's just got to be aware of that. That'd be the single biggest thing. Yeah. If they were seeing me, I'd have two or three visits with them to revisit it because there yeah. should be lots of questions, right? Yeah. Something I was having a chat to someone uh, a week ago or so about in, in knees and, and knee replacements about mechanical alignment versus kinetic alignment. Is that something that you talk about or think about with, with something like a fusion as well or, or an ankle fusion or not so much? Uh, not so, so ankle fusion is actually a tricky operation. So, mm-hmm. um, cause you, your ba- principle of an ankle fusion is your patient basically needs to get the foot to the floor. So you don't want to put them in any plantar flexion or they'll start walking on their forefoot mm-hmm. and then, uh, they'll get lots of pain in the forefoot and they'll hate it. Right. Um, so purely we're not, so when we talk about knees, knees has become a fad to do. Um, kinematic alignment, which is essentially trying to say they're trying to put the patient back to where their normal anatomy is, is my understanding. Whereas typically with knee replacements, they were trying to restore mechanical alignment, which is, I mean, that's a whole other topic to talk about, but it's, yeah. Um, so, and there's pros and cons to that. And anyway, um, no, I guess neck fusion is different in mm-hmm. that, and purely we need to, we purely want to put it in a functional position for how the patient is. At that point in time we're doing the surgery um that actually becomes a problem though if someone does a knee replacement above it right because if someone does a knee replacement above it it changes the mechanics down the foot right um and then the patient all of a sudden might be walking more in the lateral border of their foot or medial border of their foot and all of a sudden ankle fusion starts to hurt so um purely though with an ankle fusion we're really just trying to get heel to the ground uh and we want the patient not in too much valgus or too much varus when close to neutral or a little bit of valgus basically mm. um and that's that's typically what we're always aiming for uh because we need to they basically just need to be able to walk and walk without pain yeah 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 great mm. oh, they're gonna appreciate that i bet they didn't thought when they sent the question through could they send <laughs> I don't it through know if they were, yeah they probably weren't expecting that answer either i'd say but i think but, it's, yeah. good but it's good yeah, yeah. i think that's yeah. what they probably need to hear it's probably what they're not thinking about mm. i'd say yeah that's good. Um, so talking about our, our next topic of tailor dome lesions, and I, I want to get your opinion, like, do you think these are common in clinical practice? Because I know even when I was in, a new, new graduate, like in my first six months, I didn't really see them at all. And I think that I actually did see them, but I just do- didn't diagnose them and they probably were mismanaged and, and went somewhere else and did get diagnosed. Do you think they're more common than what people think? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. the studies, the studies they've done um, where they've just MRI'd uh, ankle sprains over and over for like 200 patients. And funnily enough, there's probably in about, I think it's something, I think the paper's somewhere between 50 and 70% of ankle wow. sprains have yeah. some level of OCD. Now that doesn't mean they're bad. Like that mm. might just mean they've simply got some bone bruising or something like that. But uh, but they're, they're much more prevalent than we probably give it credit for, yeah. right? Um, but in saying that, they're a tricky one because um, like I said before, some of them are symptomatic and some aren't, right? Mm. And uh so if you talk about things like x-rays, 
X-rays are only going to pick them up maybe 30 to 50% of the time. That's what mm-hmm. the literature would say. Um, so an X-ray is, an X-ray is not going to, is going to miss a lot, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, then the question becomes, well, we can't MRI everybody. We can't CT everybody. Like ankle sprain is the most common mm-hmm. injury in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you've probably seen, I've probably seen heaps, Blake, and you've probably seen heaps. The same with you, Kelly. Yeah. Um, and we've missed it, but it has never caused a patient a problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think the important thing is, is to think, well, patient's not getting better from an ankle sprain after a few weeks, like five, six weeks. There's something else going on. That's, mm. the, that's the key to sort of think of, right? Is yeah. You can't just ignore the patient and say, ah, oh, it's just a sprain. It's just, it's going to get better, right? Mm. That's, we're just going to have it. That, okay, it's going to be a safety net. The patient's not getting better. Mm. We're going to go looking for stuff. How, how would you explain, I probably should have started, that with, started with that first. How would you explain a Taylor Dome lesion or an OCD lesion to, to someone younger or even to a patient, I guess? Yeah, yeah, so the um, the typical medical name for it is an osteochondral, osteochondral defect, which um, osteo means bone and chondral means cartilage, right? So I'd say cartilage and usually cartilage and bone defects. So what that means is, is that I basically mean it's like it's almost like like piece of paint coming off the wall, basically, mm-hmm. right? So usually I say to the patient, oh look, your joints are covered in cartilage. It's like nice, it's nice smoothy stuff, smooth stuff. It's got low friction. It's really important for the joint to move easily, but it's a little bit like porcelain. And it's pretty real. Uh, and it, chip, it can chip off if you have a bad injury, right? Mm. And underneath that is bone. And bone is fantastic structurally, like it's really strong, but it's a little bit like sandpaper in its consistency. So we don't want to expose the bone. But unfortunately, when you have a lesion like this, it's basically like the little chip of the porcelain is coming off. Mm. And underneath is the, is, the, is the sandpaper bone. And if you then you've got sandpaper exposed, it can rub more porcelain off from somewhere mm. else in the joint, right? Mm. Um, now, unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess, is that they all come in all different shapes and sizes. So what I mean by that is, is that um, some patients just have some bruising of the bone underneath the cartilage. Some patients have chipped the cartilage, but it's not actually moved off or fallen off and it's, and it's still held on a little bit, so it's not going to come mm. off. Um, other patients have a big piece of bone attached to the cartilage that's floating in their ankle and mm. needs to be reattached. Um, so it, uh, it will depend a little bit. Usually I've got the image there and I can point out here it is. And then I say, well, look, this one in yours is, is okay. It's sitting where it's supposed to. Um, it's got a little bit of bone attached to it. If we stay off for, for six weeks sort of thing, I'm pretty sure it hopefully will heal kind of thing. But they come in all different. Like there's a wide range of how it mm. presents, unfortunately. Um, and the other thing is, is there's a lot of operations for it. Yeah, the next question was the management. Yeah. Mm. The general rule in orthopedics is the more operations you have for something, the less likely those operations are to work, right? <laughs> so if you've, got a, some, if you've got a lot of treatments, something like look at forefoot surgery, right? Mm. It's like thousands of treatments, which usually means that the ones you've got don't work that mm. well, right? So um, treatment, well, treatment is a little bit dependent on the lesion, I guess, right? So if I've got someone that's had a really bad injury and I can actually see on the x-ray they've got, a, they've got an osteochondral defect and it's come off and I actually see a big piece sliding in the joints. If the, if the piece has got a fair bit of bone attached to it, that's a good thing because I can actually put it back to where it needs to be with surgery and hold it there with something. I can't actually put cartilage back on, right? Mm-hmm. So if cartilage is attached to bone, I can get bone to heal and by way of that happening, the cartilage will stay where it needs to. But if it comes off with a small piece of bone that I can't, or, or just cartilage itself that's floating in the joints, 
I can't put that thing back on. I'm actually going to take the cartilage out because it's just going to get stuck somewhere in the joint, right? If I've got a bit that's chipped off and the bone is exposed, typically what we do is do something called a microfracture. So what that means is we look inside the joint with a camera and an arthroscopy and we actually drill some little holes, poke some little holes mm -hmm. in the bone that's exposed. Yeah. And the idea is to provoke a healing response from the bone so the body forms basically something called fibrocartilage. And that's probably effective around about 70% of the time. Yeah. It's dependent on the chronicity of the lesion and, and the size of it and those sorts of things. And that's probably the most commonly performed operation mm. for an osteochondral defect of the talus. And then you'll find that there's still some patients that aren't better, right? Or they have a bigger lesion. Um, some surgeons in that case will actually take some cartilage from the knee. They take some cartilage and bone from the knee. It's called the folks procedure. And they'll then go and reinsert that into the talus, right? Okay. And that's probably similar success rate to mm. the other modalities. And then in the States, in America, they, they actually take uh, what we call allografts. They take talus out of a dead person and pop it in. Wow. I, I'm less familiar. Like, I know that procedure works. I'm less familiar with the success rate of it. Uh, and I haven't, typically, and I haven't typically seen it in Australia. Yeah. Um, there are other therapies where there's, there's, there's pharmaceutical companies that have developed injectables where they, they're basically, they, they claim that fibrocartilage will form over the top. Um, the debate's probably out on that at the moment and whether mm -hmm. they're actually successful. Most of the studies on that have been commissioned by the companies <laughs> themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we just recently, I think, lost the Medicare rebate for that in Australia, which usually suggests that they don't think there's enough information mm. that it actually works. So, I mean, that might improve over time. Mm. Um, but it's true. They're tricky. I'll be honest, they're tricky lesions. Um, are they, they, are they only? Sorry. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> are they only getting picked up on x ray if the bone's coming with the porcelain? I think more often than not, yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, you okay. won't pick up a you won't pick up a cartilage lesion unless there's a obvious like a really big defect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and do, do they use much like cortisone or things like that in any injectables in the minor ones? Do they? Yeah, look, we do, we do. Like so, and then you're really after a symptomatic benefit yeah. with that. True, true. So I mean, typically, more, I mean, that's the other thing which I probably didn't talk about is is that a lot of time I'll be trying to get patients off these lesions for a period of like six weeks mm. right to see if we can get some level of healing or just dampen down the inflammation stop the shearing effect from weight bearing mm. and then um, we're talking about where patients don't save a big piece that I can reattach essentially mm. right um, and then you might do a steroid injection with the idea that you're just trying to calm down the symptoms or sometimes I'm using an injection to work out that that's the actual pain generating mm. area of the ankle, right? They might have mm. other pathology. And in which case I'm often I'll say to the patient, look, to be honest, the steroids like a flip of the coin with it's going to work. Yeah. Uh, but, but the local anesthetic is useful because we're going to inject it around this lesion here under an ultrasound so we know where it is. Mm. And if you get a lot of relief in those first two or three hours after the injection from the local anesthetic, that tells me, hey, that's definitely the, that's mm. definitely the pain generating site and then we're going to deal with it, right? But so, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's, I should have brought that up earlier, but yeah, that's probably a, re that's a reasonable way to go about it. Things like anti-inflammatories, staying off the foot, mm. um, and then, you know, steroid injection, if you're not getting anywhere, uh, are probably, th are definitely three, like, sort of, they're probably the three most common ways of managing it initially. And then if yeah. you're not getting anywhere, then you can proceed over those surgical options. With like, especially with a sporting person where, you know, time getting back to play or activity or training is, is pretty important yeah. for, for clinicians that are, 
that are concerned of maybe an OCD, it's probably better off because I know some clinicians that'll send for an X-ray, wait for that to come back. And then if they don't find anything, they'll try a little bit of time again, and then they'll send off to to you guys or to the GP to to see you. Do you think it's better to send off, again, if you haven't got that initial improvement, better to send to you probably initially because you'll be able to get the correct imaging and then just manage it quicker? Because I know X-ray is probably not going to be worth worthwhile in, the, in this. I guess that ultimately comes down to like how how does the management change if it's there versus not, right? True. I mean, I still go back to that one before, right? If you guys, are, you guys experience. I mean, most of these mm-hmm. injuries are going to present very much like an ankle sprain, right? Yeah. I think it is still reason. I mean, and and when you see an ankle sprain, some of them are really really painful to begin with, really swollen. Other than, others of them are very minor, and mm-hmm. the OCD can occur in either of them, right? Yeah. I, I still think you treat an ankle sprain as as you would normally. And then yeah. if you're getting to that five, if you're experienced with any ankle sprains, right? Yeah. Um, you get to that five or six week mark, you're like, well, this just is something not right, right? This mm. patient's not improving. There's this one spot where they're really sore always. There's some other reason for it. And I would say that's the time to refer. Mm. I mean, yeah, well, I'd love to see them all in one or two weeks, but that's not like, yeah, I'd be seeing yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's just not realistic. Like I said, the ankle sprain, what is it like? I think ankle sprains make up like seven to ten percent of emergency presentations in the US, mm. right? Well, like, it's yeah. not. It's not like it's it's the most common injury in the in the world, right? Mm. Um, I think it's interesting that there's some guys called Aspatar, which is a sports medicine group in Dubai, which they they, they like to class themselves as the leading mm. people in sports medicine, but they've done quite a bit of research into ankle sprains, mm. and they're, they're saying, look, we really shouldn't be calling it a sprain. Like I said, well, if you if you had a knee rock up to a patient with a knee injury rock up to emergency, the exactly. terminology used would be like, well, they had an invert, you know, they had this injury, this is the mechanism. Um, we felt a pop, uh, they're a bit lax an interior jaw. It's probably an ACL, right? Or an MCL injury, right? They don't usually say you've got a knee sprain, mm-hmm. right? Um, the same stuff, you know, the same should could be applied to an ankle sprain, right? Like 40% of ankle sprains are still painful down the track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's you know funnily enough there's been studies that show even with an inversion injury and an ankle sprain where they've same thing where they MRI'd everybody consecutively 20% of them were found to have a syndesmotic injury as well right which yeah. makes absolutely no sense right you're an inversion injury completely opposite mechanism of a syndesmotic injury uh so I guess the, the thought's got to be okay yes most of them get better but they're not benign injuries right mm. so you just got to can't just say it's an ankle sprain it'll get better don't worry don't worry don't worry mm. you got to watch it five six weeks do your proper rehab and if they're not getting better that, okay, either I get some more imaging uh, and probably more of an X-ray at that point, but there's a, an X-ray definitely should be done. Like mm. it's a good first baseline. Mm. Like X-ray is underestimated, right? Mm. There would be nobody that gets referred to me, even for what we think is mostly soft tissue, that doesn't get an X-ray. Uh, I'm not saying every ankle sprain should be X-ray because that'd be also crazy, yeah. right? But if you've got a patient that's five or six down, weeks down the line, um, that's not getting better. An X-ray first, if that's normal, you got probably got to be thinking of some high-level imaging. That's probably an MRI, mm-hmm. um, but but that's a bit dependent on what the presentation is. Yeah, oh. I like that. I like imaging. You don't really like it that much, hey? I often X-ray ankle sprains. What's ankle, yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm just thinking of a patient that I have at the moment who's probably almost four weeks down the track after an ankle sprain. And it's just a really nasty one. We've had her in a boot for the last four weeks. And every time we try and take her out of the boot, it's still just super painful. And so I'm suspicious of a a Taylor dome lesion or an OCD. Um, So it's, that's all quite helpful for for my thinking as well. (laughs) Everything that you've said with her. 
Yeah, I mean, it looks tricky, right? So you, you almost just, they could have a perineal tendon injury or something like that too, right? Like it's, or a deltoid injury, you know? Yeah, like a deltoid. So it's yeah. medial part is, is super painful for this person that I'm thinking of. And, and that's something yeah. that I was going to ask you about because it, it often is involved and I can just never quite get my head around why or how. <laughs> yep, don't worry. I can't either, right? So the deltoid I wish I ligament like, yeah. in ankle sprains, it just doesn't make sense to me. It would just be like a compressive, like a compressive. Why is it? stretched then mm. would it be you, something compressive well it's interesting right like so i agree i can't get my head around it very easily either right mm. so uh but what i do know is that from those mri studies that if you have a low ankle sprain so an inversion injury almost up to 50 percent of the mris will show some level of a deltoid injury mm. right so it's not uncommon it's not really common um if you go watch a if you go watch a video of a cadaver that's brought into inversion you actually see that it looks like what the talus does is it sort of shifts laterally a little bit first and then it internally rotates and inverts right so you can sort of see how those anterior fibers of the deltoid get injured mm. right but for the more severe injuries I, yeah I, I struggled myself to work out how that happens i definitely see lots of it right but that goes by the same token um there's a, there's quite a few lectures now that have been saying well we don't understand low ankle sprains as much as we thought. Um, like, for instance, the, the syndesmosis injuries that you find on, on an MRI after patients that almost clearly had an inversion injury, that makes no sense, mm -hmm. right? So there's something, I suspect that often because the, the mechanism is more complex than we think, right? So some patients are just going to fall straight into inversion, right? But I suspect in some cases there's, there's more than that. Or yeah. it's more severe than we think, right? But I definitely, definitely see it. Mm. Um, and so, uh, but the mechanism is is interesting, right? Like, so I've tried to look into this quite a lot. There's not a heap of information for people talking about the mechanism and how the delta is injured. You might, you guys might get a whole lot of emails from someone who's got a paper that knows knows it, or a surgeon that's like, well, this guy's talking garbage. It's, it's mm. clearly this, right? But I don't, like, I have I have attempted to research it, and I haven't found great. Yeah explanations on it so yeah. but it's definitely out there and then deltoid themselves deltoid injuries themselves are uh um there's a lot of debate as to how to manage them mm. right so that's that's like a very tricky topic each surgeon will tell you something different and the yeah. literature is not clear basically on deltoid injuries on on that topic of like the research and the literature not being clear and i've tried over the years mm -hmm. and one of our topics we're going to talk about like plantar fascia tear management there's a lot of people that have a great understanding or, or say they have a good understanding but when we look at the research over the other side that there's just not much not much there really like at all for partial tears we, we had a patient uh earlier on this year who we found to have a, a partial plantar fascia tear mm. and blake and i were both trying to research about it and we're like there's nothing like, <laughs> like, like, there's nothing no no yeah. there's, not, there's not much there at all all i can say is that from a surgeon's perspective right if you've got, I mean, it, I, I tend to think it's got to be related to plantar fasciitis, right? Mm. Although some patients don't have those symptoms beforehand. Mm. Um, but surgery for plantar fasciitis, not that I'm saying that's a good idea, uh, is to release part of the plantar fascia, just mm. like a tear would be. Which right? is like, it part? Do you mean release? Release, like, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, we get a knife and um, and we, oh. we take off. I just want to add um, one thing quickly because yeah. I know we talk about a lot and we always talk about this. For anyone listening to this, 
that talks about releasing muscles with soft tissue work. This is actually releasing a muscle. You're not releasing it when you're massaging. I just want to say that quickly. No, yeah. it's actually quite hard to release, release with a scalpel, right? So Yeah, so your um, thumbs probably aren't cutting it. Thumbs just not going to do yeah. it. Uh, good, good, even good. if your nails are pretty sharp. Not gonna do it. <laughs> not so, no, so no, there's not much out there. I, look, that is one, maybe I'm sticking my head in the sand, but that is one injury that doesn't, as a surgeon, doesn't worry me very much. Mm. Like I... I can't say I've ever had to repair it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, to me, make a lot of sense to repair it. Um, Are you talking about a, a complete a, tear or a partial tear? Either. To either. Either. All right. right. Okay, cool. Um, like I said, with implantal fasciitis, we, we release it as a treatment option. Anyway, it's not the world's most successful treatment option, mm-hmm. right? But it is, that's how we do that surgery. And so, um, I mean, the worry that we have with that is whether that causes a flat foot mm-hmm. or... Or something like that. Issues. Uh, but I but your chance of actually repairing that thing well surgically is not great. Mm. It's it's not it's like it is tough tissue when you release it, but then to go to repair it, you're not going to get a great hold. Mm. Uh, and I don't I don't think you'll see a difference in the patient's symptoms. What I can say is the majority of patients, I don't know if this is your experience, but the majority of patients will recover. Yeah, they'll, they'll be fine. Three to six month period, right? With yeah. most often no repercussions, it's painful at the time, mm. um, but they will do very well. With a period of offloading, and then and then rehabilitation. Yeah, we like you know even just like a, a simple cheap you know orthotic, and sometimes you use a carbon plate, plenty of taping, yep. some compression yep. socks, you know, a yep. stiff rocker bottom shoe. Hydrate cuddling. Um, yeah, just cuddling as much as you can. Obviously, <laughs> doing it only as much as you need to, but generally yep. it is painful, but it, it gets better. Would like yep. would those fibers oh, then would they reattach and be scar tissue? What like what what, what happens? They're most likely just going to scar up. Realistically, yeah. they may not. I, I doubt they reattach. Yeah, because I know patients ask that they'll be like, you yeah. know, and I always say it probably doesn't matter what the outcome is because as long as we rehab you back there, but it'll just scar. Yeah. You would say that's right. Yeah, yeah. it'll just scar. It'll, it'll just scar. What about uh, if it was it was quite a, like a young person and it was a traumatic sporting injury with a complete tear? Yeah. and they wanted to be a 100-metre sprinter or something like that. Would that change your management at all or still not really? No, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I think about long and hard if they continue to have pain, but I doubt long-term it would affect their sprinting. Mm. I, I'm not saying that the plantar fascia is a minor player. It's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable player in terms of in terms of supporting your arch, but mm. it's not the only player, Yeah. right? Uh, so... I, I, I mean, I'm just speaking from a personal experience. Not this is not literature, but I'm not. I, and it's more often than not these things are happening in active people. They're not often happening in sedentary people. Yeah, I was going to say I've only seen it in active people. Yeah, and they recover very, very well. Mm. It's just purely that they don't. You just got to make sure they don't have pain. Mm. I, I just your surgical repair. And like the other thing is where you make where you would make a cut for a surgical repair is a terrible place mm. uh, to put an incision for a runner, basically. Mm. Right, so. I mean, I'm not saying I'd never do it. I haven't had to do it. Uh, but that would my, my reasoning would definitely be if they've got ongoing pain that's impairing their function. And mm. I'd probably get two or three opinions from other surgeons to make sure I'm doing the right thing beforehand. Because mm. uh, I can't say I've heard of a surgeon reattaching it. It's definitely in the literature, right? Mm. But none of the people I've ever worked with have considered repairing one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. What What's your kind of opinion and thoughts? I'm thinking of a patient I had a couple of weeks ago um, that lives a couple of hours away, had come down um, to see a surgeon and, and she'd been said that, that she might need a, um, a pretty complex surgery um, 
and then she'd seen the physio and then saw me. It was a roundabout way of coming to me, but she was just asking my opinion. Um, um, pretty complex history of rheumatoid arthritis, lots of foot deformity, pretty debilitating pain, and it was going to be maybe an ankle fusion. I can't remember. It was a pretty complex surgery um, and older, frail, and not much mobility anyway. But um, she was kind of asking my opinion um, actually about the, the surgeon. And I, and I never ever comment on any other health professionals and just say, you know, it's always worth getting a second opinion. What would you say? Because especially in your field, I mean, in my field, I tell people they feel like it, they can have a second opinion. W- would you tell patients, because I think it's good to always have a second opinion. Do you ever tell patients that, you know, it's beneficial if they're concerned? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like um, the other thing is a surgeon, you'd much rather you initiate the referral than mm. the patient does it themselves. Right. Mm. Uh you're looking for backup, but I always say to patients, look, these things, these things are complex. Mm-hmm. You want to get a completely different opinion, right? So in which case, then you've got you've got a, you've got somebody to consider. Or mm-hmm. you might, fortunately, but well, fortunately for me, if, if I send it to someone else, they might say exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. In which case, that gives patients uh, much more confidence that they're mm-hmm. going into this thing and it's the right decision, right? Um, I think in the past, there's been a real reluctance to get. Mm. a second opinion because it makes you look unsure mm. but um as i said before like these these conditions that we're dealing with are incredibly complex uh and the surgery is good but not perfect and so the more people that say that for the patient the more they're likely to get the message and the more likely they can have confidence that people are doing the right thing um mm. i mean when you get a question like that like, that's that's a really hard position for you to it is in, right because yeah. because you Either way, you, you can't really win, right? If you say, no, no, no he's fine, and something goes bad, mm. makes you look bad. Uh, if you say, no, no, I think you should get a second opinion, then then you wonder whether that feeds back to the surgeon, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this has happened to me when I started, right? I had a patient see a podiatrist after uh, I'd seen them. I booked them for surgery. All of a sudden, the case was cancelled. Um, I was like, what's going on? She's like, oh, I saw this podiatrist and they recommended someone else. They hadn't heard of you. <laughs> it wasn't me, was it? Right. <laughs> uh, no, another podiatrist place in town. So, yeah. um, but, you know, and, and look, it's fine people have opinions, but um, you can't sort of throw the other health professional under the bus. Right? No, and so you've got no understanding about that. No, so, I mean, it's, and look, this happens, right? I mean, you try, you always try your best to have a good relationship with the patient, but sometimes... The message doesn't get across mm. or they don't feel comfortable with you. And it's actually better than the patient goes somewhere else because a big part of the healing is actually trust, mm. right, with the professional. And, and and you've got to, you're going to have, I mean, it does hurt as a clinician to see them go away and think that you haven't, like, that they're not confident in what you're doing. But mm. you've got to put your ego to one side and say, well, look, it's probably better off for the patient and yourself that that happens, right? Mm. Um, my approach to that, if you're in that position, but look, if you're not sure, go ask the surgeon again, have a list of questions, right? Mm. Just to make sure you're happy and ask them are they happy for a second opinion just because you're not sure, right? Mm. And a good surgeon will do that. They'll say, yeah, well, I've, yeah. if I've got a patient that's hesitating in front of me, I say, look, this is not straightforward. Most of the time you go to a surgeon and we say, do this. I'm saying to you, these are the risks, these are the benefits, make your choice. Mm. Um, but if you're not sure, let's get some more information. Why don't you see someone else and see what they think, right? Mm. Um, and I think that's, look, that's I, think, I reckon second opinions are very, very beneficial. Oh, I think as, sure. the, as the clinician initiating it, you probably lose about 40 to 50% of the patients that you do that to mm. because you are putting yourself in a position where you don't look as confident, but you just mm. got to accept that because mm. ultimately what you're in it for is for the good result for the patient, right? And you don't yeah. want to end up in a position where 
uh, you've not got that. And, and surgery, there's, there's risks for surgery, right? Mm. For neck surgery in particular, things can be imperfect. Mm. And so um, you're much better of, much better have got two opinions if you're not sure about something or the patient's unsure. Yeah. And like that's the truth as well. It's not Mm -hmm. like we're saying again, the second opinion, because I've got no, I guess I've got no idea what we're talking about. I'm really unsure. And you're only advocating the truth to the patient. No, Mm -hmm. it's better than saying, yes, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing. Don't listen to anyone else. Let's do this. Cause there's nothing in, especially sports medicine, but anything in muscular school or rehab, that's a hundred percent. Like even if you're the most confident, sometimes it just doesn't work. No, I mean, if you look at that guy with a snowboarder, right? Like mm-hmm. with a, with a um, general vertical tailor, yeah. like that's extremely risky for the surgeon, mm-hmm. right? So as in for the outcome for the patient. So having two or three people say, hey, look, this might not work out how you like it, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, is beneficial, mm-hmm. right? Um, it will at least let him make that patient know that, okay, I probably need to do this, but there's a, there's a real risk to it. Yeah. In terms of what I want to do, you know, in the future. Yeah. It's, it's probably easier. I'm just thinking of patients that I've seen who have, like, say, come to me for a second opinion and they, they come in and they're like, oh, well, this person told me this and I'm not too sure about these things that they said. So you kind of already have that that win above that Fine previous size. clinician. Oh, absolutely. Because, it is so much easier to be the second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it is, and it is so much easier to be confident, you know. Uh, you're like, oh, well, I think this. So you know, yeah, I can understand what that person thought that thing, but I think this, but ultimately it's your choice who you really want to go with, right? Mm-hmm. You say that to the patient and I'll be honest, like when they come, when I'm a second opinion person, they do, they often stick with me and when I'm usually sending them to someone else, they usually stick with that person, right? Yeah. It's much, it's a, but that's, that's a perception thing and that's, that's yeah. okay, right? And I think okay as you get, that. as you get older, especially, and I always say when I started off, like when I was younger, I would, if someone would come to me, I'd be like, oh, you know, as if you would do something like that. And then you realize yeah. that that's the complete wrong way to go about it. And yep. now I just say, you know, that's great. We've got the benefit of hindsight. We know what worked and what did it. If yep. anything, it's beneficial. Now we can do these things because we haven't tried that. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, I wanted, I did want to ask about um, which question actually do you want to ask? We'll finish with one more so people have got some time to listen to it. Mm, why don't we just ask them both yeah we've got yeah, two more questions two that we want to ask this could be another 45 minutes yeah <laughs> so yeah you are so we uh wanted to just quickly touch on a bit of chronic ankle instability where we we did touch on the deltoid ligaments stuff which kind of plays into it a little bit yeah. um but i guess chronic ankle instability sort of you know begins with an ankle sprain how does it progress into chronic ankle instability is it you know what we were talking about previously where maybe the deltoid ligaments involved or maybe there's a tailor dome lesion that hasn't been picked up or is it bad rehab or what 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 would you say yeah i know i'm answering all these questions in the gray right but <laughs> that's a million dollar question right so mm-hmm. if we could pick out the people that are going to go on to chronic ankle instability i'd be operating on them straight away yeah. Right. Um, the problem is it's hard to pick. Um, and to be honest, like I have, you probably see this too, Blake. You have those patients that got really capovarus foot, mm. really high HP, hind foot sits in varus. You think they're going to be the ones, right? Mm. And look, the percentage of them are, but they've had those feet for a long time, yes. right? Yeah. So <laughs> why now? What? But um, and you do, you do, you do get those patients that are the chronic, and they're the ones probably I would watch more carefully. But they're not your typical chronic instability patients. Like they've got another reason, right? Like they're probably never going to get better unless you change 
if they've then developed instability and they've had their cavity very steep for like 20 years mm. and all of a sudden they're very unstable, just, just stabilizing the ligaments for those people is never going to work. Mm. I've actually got to change the shape of their foot probably. Yeah. Um, but for your average person who keeps spraining, uh, they're hard. They, they are going to be like when you initially see them, they're very hard to pick, right? Because it's not based on the severity of the sprain. It's not based on the mechanism. Um, it's not based on their BMI or their or their heights. Like there's been a few studies looking for reasons, but they're not been that definitive in working out who 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 are those people that are going to go on to develop chronic instability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sort of thought probably a year or two ago that um, you know that we could probably weed them out if we gave them more physiotherapy. Right, because there's actually one or two studies out of Canada where they actually tried to give all of them physiotherapy versus just giving them a card to do some exercises, and they did much the same. Oh, right, damn. right, yeah, yeah, I know, right? Because I, you know, like mm. I, um, honestly thought physiotherapy. You know, I do. Don't get me wrong. I send people to physiotherapy, right? Like, absolutely think it's worthwhile if they come to me with an explain and they get physiotherapy, right? Um, but uh, maybe it's not as valuable as I thought. Yes, mm. right. I don't. I certainly don't want the message out of this podcast to be you've got an ankle sprain, don't do any rehab, right? I, I definitely think if you, uh, if you I can see the sprain, tears coming down right? Charles' face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> trust me, I probably just lost about like thirty different referrers. When I've seen yeah. that, right? But, yeah. but, um, but uh, like I, I don't think it's useful. But, but it may not, it may not prevent those people who are going to be chronic mm-hmm. um, sprainers. I guess, yeah. right? Um, what I can say is, is that I do say to patients, look, you've got to give it. So for me as a surgeon, it's a tick box thing, right? So over time, I've sort of found locally who I trust to do good rehab, right? When you guys, you know, you do podcasts and things like dry needling, that sort of stuff, right? Well, they're sort of red flags to surgical yeah. too, right? So, yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, so. Good to hear. Know, but, good to hear. Right? Yeah. yeah. Look, look, I mean, look, there's going to be like, but, but as a surgeon, if you're referring to physio, you're mostly referring for yeah. Yeah, range of motion, strength, proprioception, right? So anything outside of that is wasting the patient's time. Mm. If it's got a small effect, okay, yeah, great. But but that's not really what I want them there for, right? So so that that's does play in, yeah, right. So that plays into the referral for the surgeon. Now it's a bit tricky then if the patient's got a prior relationship with the physiotherapist. You don't really want to wrench them away with that because like mm. I said, the trust thing is important to me as well. Right, mm-hmm. um, but but uh, like I think all patients that have a sprain should do some some uh, level of rehab. But same thing as the pain thing, if they probably a bit longer with the instability, if they're getting out two or three months and they're still unstable, so they either have a sensation of unstable or they are or they do keep spraining, then you've got to start to think, well, they're they're probably not going to get better, mm-hmm. right? In saying that. Um, the literature is a bit uh, unclear on that. Some people would argue two to three months. Other people would argue six to 12, mm. right? But I found most of my patients that come to see me, they've, well, they've usually had multiple sprains by the time they've come to see me. Mm. Some of them have done, have done physio and got a little bit better for a while and then sprained again, right? Uh, so my, my usual thing is if they've not had any physio, I give them two or three months to see if the physio can regain the stability. And if that fails... Then, then usually I'm looking at, at stabilizing basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, that doesn't answer your question again, right? I've gone off on another tangent. 
but that's okay. Um, we know yeah, it's but, like that. That's how it is. Yeah, 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 Blake but, always but, asks me questions and I never answer them as well. So it's never black and white. But basically, the answer is don't know, right? Which is really yeah. annoying. Like, because otherwise, I would be fixing the ones I was really worried about. But but you can't. All I can say is you've got to watch for it. Yeah. Right. And that's where you. That's where your physiotherapists are important. That's where your GPs are important to say, okay. And even you and your podiatrists, right, are important. Um, that if they're not getting better, they're still got instability symptoms that, that you can't just say it's going to get better now. If they've had good rehab, they've failed. Now it's something that they've got to do something about it. And that operation, I can say, is pretty successful. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And that kind of leads into our next question about the, the development of um, ankle osteoarthritis. Is, is the reason that you're wanting to operate on those, uh, you know, if you knew mm. that they were coming to prevent mm. that condition? Is that a big part of yeah. it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, but once again, we don't, so it's interesting, like a lot of surgeons would argue, for instance, like ACLs, that an ACL that's left for a long time potentially causes knee arthritis. Mm. Um, and you'll find some surgeon, what's that, sorry? I've heard that like commonly. Is that, is I that, don't think well, that's true though. My, my understanding is it's still unclear, mm. right? Yeah. Um, some surgeons vehemently argue for, and look, I'm not a knee surgeon, but, mm. but there's, there's arguments for and against, and there is a bit of literature that tries to argue yes, but mm. you've probably got to have like a long term, follow-up to really work that out mm. um the same's not being done for ankles mm. right you probably could do it because there's a lot of ankle sprains out there yeah right um my theory on that is yes i think some of the chronic instability patients will develop arthritis you if you have so what there's some biomechanical studies uh, on ankle injuries that if you go through um the cfl in particular with your injury and it remains a problem that your access of force that goes through the ankle actually shifts posteromedially so it changes the axis where your force goes through the ankle. Interesting. Yeah, funnily, cool. yeah. so funnily yeah. enough, it moves towards the shoulder of the medial um, talus, which is where we see a lot of OCDs, mm. right? But typically, in a chronic instability patient, your ankle, um, you'll see it in the medial shoulder, right? Mm. Which, which the biomechanical stuff makes matches up in that regard, right? Mm. Um, so if you do that, oh, it's the same with syndesmosis. So if you do a syndesmosis injury and you go through all three ligaments to syndesmosis, your axis of force goes posterolaterally, right? So it goes sort of the opposite direction. Yeah. So you change the axis and mechanics of the ankle for a long time. And the general principle of orthopedics is if you do that to a joint for a long period of time, we think it's more likely to be arthritic because your cartilage is developed to be thicker in some places, thinner in others, depending mm -hmm. on how it's supposed to move, right? So if you yeah. change that, you would think that ultimately that's going to cause more damage. Yeah. Um, but we don't have any proof. We can't link chronic ankle stability to arthritis based on the literature. Correlation, um, kind of thing. Well, like so, yeah, because that's true. Yeah, correlation. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I do think actually probably more sinister is syndesmosis, mm. right? I think, so I certainly have in my practice seen, so um, you guys are familiar with a Weber C fracture to the mm. fibula, right? Typically, that's associated with a syndesmosis injury. Right. Um, I think I might not have the timelines on this, but maybe 30 years ago, 25 years ago, people typically would just put a plate on the on the fibula bone and just fix the fibula, right? So the syndesmosis wasn't always addressed. Mm. And I've definitely seen patients come to my practice that are 20 years down the track from that, but I say, ah, it was never quite right. And they've got this horrible arthritis to their ankle. Right. Mm. Um, and then we see these and, and ankle ankle arthritis is very different from hip and knee, and that it's supposed to be, from the literature says, mostly post-traumatic. Whereas mm. hip and knee is far more genetic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and I do think there's probably a group of people that have had a syndesmosis injury or even a soft tissue syndesmosis injury maybe 15, 20 years ago. Right. Um, and 
their only symptom might be, hey, when I go to pivot, it just doesn't feel right. right. I get yeah. pain when I pivot. Right, but walking day to day is fine. Running straight lines fine. I'm okay. But all that time, the, uh, the ankles have just been subtly not right. Mm-hmm. And over time, that causes, you know, that, that potentially causes a general change. But, I, but they're all theories, right? Mm-hmm. Like no one's done a longitudinal study that says, okay, we followed all these ankle sprains for like 25 years mm-hmm. and this many people got chronic instability. And then of those chronic instability people, this many people got arthritis. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not aware of, once again, I'm not aware of that of a, of a type of study. Mm-hmm. That shows that certainly yeah. if someone's got one let me know um but i yeah, yeah. so and, and you gotta look at the knees right knees are much more heavily studied area and i think the jury's still out on that and so because what you're looking for as a surgeon is a reason you're trying to usually you're looking for a reason to justify surgery mm. right and so the knee guys that want to use an acl reconstruction as a reason to justify reducing your risk of arthritis not just stabilizing the knee but reducing your risk of arthritis in the future right mm. same as ankle surgeons we thought they definitely cause arthritis, then we should be stabilising a lot. Yeah, a lot more. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we can't talk about that from an evidence-based yeah. standpoint. Right? Yeah, or we can say the mechanics, the mechanics might say that that's what happens or, or is likely to happen, but we can't say for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. a bit like, oh, I hope it's similar, a bit like saying, you know, um, cavus feet are always going to develop lateral forefoot or lateral perineal pathology, and you see plenty of cavus feet, no issues, no problems at all, or yeah. no ankle issues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that we just there's a lot of these injuries we just we have an understanding of, mm. but we don't have a complete understanding. The body's more complex, yeah, than we give it credit for, right? So, we think we know these things, but we probably don't. Yeah. And like for people listening to this, I mean, it, it's great to be confident and have an understanding, but you've got to be transparent with your patients. Like you can't say this is going to happen when I do this. Like, yeah. you know, someone like yourself, if you're not hundred percent confident with your background, you know, I don't understand how some clinicians can be so confident with, with what they're doing. Don't get me wrong. It's good to have yeah. confidence, but you've got to understand that it doesn't work all the time. And it's, I no. guess explaining that with your patients as well. Yeah, and the, well, the temptation is you just want to look confident, just say, mm. yeah, this is fine, right? And the patient looks at you like, yeah, I trust you, great, fantastic. You know, because trust is trust and confidence probably actually contributes a fair bit to the outcome. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I can't honestly, like, honestly can't sit there and lie to the patient and say with half these things that it's 100% going to be right. Yeah. Like, patients often look at you with two heads when you say, like, so my thing with forefoot surgery, right? Is it a mm. common saying for ankle surgery is, is that you can do the same operation on two toes. Um, you're talking about the lesser toes. Mm. Um, same operation, be just as confident with both of it. Two toes at the end of the case, like three weeks later, will look completely different, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and I'll say that to patients, they look at me like, what? What do you mean? And I was like, well, literature says there's a, you know, there's a deformity rate of this. Um, I can say from experience that, and I can say from looking at other people's work <laughs> that this happens, mm. right? I just need you to be aware of that. Right. If yeah. that changes your decision, fine. But you need to be aware of it before. And I hate talking about it because you look like a mark. You look, honestly mm. look like you don't like you're not confident in what you're doing. Mm. But you gotta you gotta tell people these things. They're putting their trust in you, right? Yeah. And hard for patients to get that as well because they yeah. they definitely think that in the kind of sports medicine musculoskeletal world, we've got everything worked out. Like, great, you've yeah. got this condition. Awesome. We just do this and you get better. The body's yeah. not variable or complex. We just treat you like a car and you get better. It's just not like that. Just not. No, definitely not. Definitely not feet. Well, definitely yeah. no. I'd say probably knees either, right? But like, yeah, muscular, you're right. So muscular is um, 
mm. is complex and challenging, right? The good news for you, Blake or Kelly, is that most of your stuff is reversible, right? Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't like your orthotic, you take it out, you change it. Yeah, which has never happened, by the way. No, I'm just yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> so yeah, physio, it was same with physiotherapy, right? You just make you do your do your exercise, your rehab doesn't work out, or if it's causing a lot of pain, you can change it up. Mm. I do something, I can't change it, right? But I can make them worse, right? Mm. And I can't reverse it half the time. So that's why you're going to be like, I'm going to be super honest with my patients. Like, if there's, mm. like, they got to know what their the risks are and the potential complications or potential unhappiness. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, that's yeah. true. And like we talk about, and I always say, you know, when we're referring to, to, um, to orthopedic surgeons or the sports doctors or, or back to anyone, you know, we, we're not in a place as allied health, I don't think, to comment on what should be done or what might be done or what might be the complications. Generally, it should be just suggesting, you know, I think it's beneficial that you get a review with this person for these reasons because we've done everything that I can do without great improvement. You definitely shouldn't be saying, and I always use um, like a binding example or even like the ankle OA, yep, just go and see the surgeon. You'll probably have this surgery. These are the complications. It's a pretty good surgery. You're just not in a place to comment on that. It's just, you should be just sending there for a review and explaining that to your patients. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think the same goes with um, same goes with surgeons and rehab and orthotics and things, right? Like mm. if I'm being absolutely honest with you, I don't know how you make an orthotic, right? I have a vague idea, right? Mm. Actually, I found your podcast quite useful, mm. right? So, <laughs> so um, I know what I want. Well, I know mm. what I'd like, but I do like, obviously you guys, you guys have a bit of play with that. I might put something on a referral, but often when I find you guys have modified it, which is absolutely fine. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and same with, same with physiotherapy, right? So I know GPs, I'll write, physio, please do physio, right? <laughs> I wouldn't say, as a surgeon, hope, hopefully we're writing better stuff than that, Kelly. Mm. But usually I'm looking for, you know, movement, proprioception, strength, but I don't really over-specify the exercises, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an individual area of expertise that I don't, have. And I actually tell patients, I'm a, I'm a really poor judge of strength mm. and mobility, right? Like we're, we're bad, doctors tend to be bad judges of mm. safety and mobility, right? Um, and, and we're not great judges of strength either, mm. right? So um, so there's, there's, yeah, all, all health um, uh, aspects, well, sorry, professionals all have their strengths and weaknesses. And you're right, you should you shouldn't comment too much on 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 someone else's area, yeah. right? Because um, you might get there and it'd be completely different. Like, well, that's no, the no, thing you, yeah. you really are boxing the other person in, right? Or you're potentially creating distrust. Mm. If you say, mm. "Well, I'm going to send you this," and they're definitely going to give you this thing, mm. um, and then that person turns around and says. No, 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 that's garbage. Or no, 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 I can't. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. The patient's sort of like, oh, who's right here? Like, who do yeah. I choose? Right, and, and that leaves them really tough. Yeah, yeah. Was, they, they just lose lose faith in the whole process. Right. What, what would your advice be for for something like a, an Achilles rupture? So, um, I'm actually thinking of a patient that that we both share. Who, who recently ruptured her Achilles um, yep. and, they're, and they're asking you, you know, what, what's better, operative or non-operative mm-hmm. management? Yep. How, how do you advise us to give them advice on something, a question yeah. like that, where it, yeah. where it kind of is a bit 50, 50-ish? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, what would you suggest? Well, I should have a video on it, right? So, um, so I've, uh, yeah, I've got a video that basically goes through what the sort of pros and cons from my perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that would vary from surgeon to surgeon a little bit too, right? Basically what I say to them is most things they come to me for, I say you need this for this particular problem. It's your choice, right? 
and here are the pros and cons. So what I found with Achilles is, is that what we know is, is that probably the results are pretty similar at 12 months in terms of function and re-rupture rate, right? We used to operate on Achilles because we thought the re-rupture rate was much greater without an operation, right? That used to be our excuse. But as we've gotten better at monoperative management, there's been more studies done. The re-rupture rate is pretty negligible compared to operative and non-operative, right? So um, I usually say to them, look, re-rupture rate, there's no difference. Function, there's probably no difference. Strength, there's some studies that show there's about a 15% difference at one and two years if you have an operation. But given the functional results are pretty similar, I think that 15% strength probably only matters to people that are that are competing at a high level. Is that so if I've 15% got, higher with operative? Yeah, higher, yeah, so higher. Yeah. yeah, but that's in a lab, right? So yeah. who knows how that correlates clinically, right? Yeah. Like, what do you need that 15% for? Do you need that 15% to get up, go up a step? Mm. Or do you need it to, you know, beat the Queensland winger that's trying to tackle you in the state of origin, right? Yeah. Like, how do, you, how do you work out who that matters to? So the problem we've got is that all athletes get operations, right? People turn mm. on the news. They all get them. And to be honest, I do the same. Like I offer the athletes, like when I've got a Newcastle Knights first grader, they're getting an operation, right? Um, because that 15% to me, even though I don't know what the clinical correlation is, that might be the difference between them, um, you know, oh, making the origin sorry. team or yeah. if they're a reserve grader, making the, the starting team, right? Mm. Or if they're a, you know, track and field person, that might be the difference between a couple of seconds, mm. right? Potentially. So, so those people get it. But, I, but for the average person, I say, well, it's probably 15% probably doesn't matter mm. that much to you because we know the functional results are much the same at 12 months. Um, so that's the spiel I start with. And then, then they sort of go, well, okay, what's the rehab, right? Like, is there a difference? There's some mm. studies that show you get back to work about a month earlier if you have an operation, but there's others that say the opposite of that. Mm. Um, my protocol at least actually has a difference in it where they actually come out of a boot about a month earlier and they're walking about a month earlier compared to if they don't have an operation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, funnily enough, I found, so most of the time when I have these chats to people, I think they're going to go for non-operative management, and they, and they more often than not will go with a surgery, funnily mm -hmm. enough, right? Um, that four weeks often means a fair bit to people, mm -hmm. right? They hate the idea of being in a boot for ages um, or off the foot for a long time. Um, and they also can't get their head around how the, how the Achilles heals mm -hmm. if I'm not putting anything in it right mm -hmm. and i also lay it down I was like you have to be really strict if you dorsiflex that ankle at all in this rehab process we're starting back at square right and so they think oh geez i'm gonna be stuck in one position for a long time what if i make a mistake what if i fall mm -hmm. right um so i i give them these sort of things and then i say to them what the risks are with surgery and so the risk of surgery is around about a five to seven percent um issue with the wound right and then i say to them well look the skin there's no matter how fat someone is, there's not much skin. Like, there's not much between the skin and the Achilles. Everyone can mm. feel their Achilles tendon, right? Um, that, that wound gets infected, high chance of the Achilles getting infected. Oh, well, if you get yeah. a bad enough, if you get a bad enough infection of the Achilles, um, you could end up with the Achilles actually taken out or you end up with an amputation, the worst case scenario. And that's, that's really low risk, but it's still mm. a possibility, right? And that's yeah. devastating. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of how I put it. And then I wait for him to make a decision. And often yeah. they're still unsure. Right. So the patient we had, Kelly, I think it's the same thing. And I get the impression she's still unsure. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, and so the other thing is, is that in one consultation, when I say all this stuff, they're going to forget about 75% of it when they walk out the door. Right. Um, so that's where, like, I've got a video on my, like on my website or the YouTube mm. channel. And I say, look, you're going to forget all this. Go watch 
this thing again that goes through it again. So you've got it clear in your head. Um, ultimately, the decision is yours. Whatever decision you make is not wrong, right? Mm. Whatever decision you make has got to be worth it for you. Um, that process changes a little bit if I get someone like one week down the track. Then my talk to them changes because I'm usually more in favour of an operative approach in that regard. If they haven't been in plan of If they've been nothing, if they've been <laughs> yeah. either not picked up or not been, not, yeah, not. So usually I want them in plan of action as quickly as possible. The reason is mm-hmm. that brings the two tendon ends back into apposition, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not going to heal properly if it doesn't. The biggest, like, I've forgotten your talks, um, your presenter's name from London, but um, I agree with him. He was talking about the tension of the Achilles. Yeah. That is the single most important thing about the Achilles in terms of treatment. Mm-hmm. So if your Achilles heals long, you are never, ever going to have power in that Achilles. Which is so important to right? have. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you need the Achilles to be, two ends of the Achilles to be touching one another essentially, right? Mm-hmm. If it's been a week before you've had any treatment, um, the body forms a hematoma, so a collection of blood between the two ends, right? And the worry is, is that you may not be able to get those two, like if you then go put them into plantar flexion, you would be concerned that the two ends aren't, aren't touching one another, right? Um, and that the Achilles will heal. The body will lay down scar between the two ends, but you'll end up with a t- tendon that's like one or two centimetres longer, mm-hmm. right, than what it's supposed to be. And the way I put it to patients is, I, look, say, I say, look, if I'm in the corner of one room and someone puts a boulder in the other corner of the room, if I was you know, pretty good with a rope and I could lasso the boulder, right, but my feet were in concrete so I couldn't move. If someone gives me a rope that's the right length, as soon as I lasso the, the, the boulder, I'll have tension on the rope and I can pull it towards me provided I'm strong enough, right? But if somebody gives me a rope that's too long, then I'll have slack in the rope. Mm. And if I can't move and I can only pull it once, like I can't just like keep pulling it towards me, then I won't get any tension on the boulder and I won't be able to move it. And in that scenario, the boulder is your heel, the rope's the Achilles, mm. and the person, me, is the muscle, yeah. right? So um, so if that patient's not got into plantar flexion early, then, then very much I will talk them into an operation, mm. right? But um, otherwise, if they had good early treatment and they're in plantar flexion, um, then it's their choice, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. where things like sometimes a second opinion, um, trying to reinforce it with, with the things like videos or a sheet for information, that sort of thing. Um, patients will often have talked to other people they know have got an Achilles, had an Achilles, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're often still very unsure, but I, I, can, I can confidently say that I've got patients that have done very well with an operation and patients that have done very well without one. Mm-hmm. So I know they both work. And funnily enough, depending where you are in the world, your treatment will change. If you're in Canada or the UK, almost universally, you get treated without an operation, right? Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, if you're in the States... You'll get an operation because of it, yeah. right? Um, if you're in Australia, you get a bit of each. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> you know, so they both yeah. work. Um, the harder question is when people say, what would you do? Mm. So that's the that's the question yeah, that, that, that we question. often get asked. It's we like, got that yesterday. It's like, so what would you, yeah, yeah, what would you do? What what do you think I should do? Should I operate or not? I know that there's 50-50, but what should I do? Like that. that's yeah. where I struggle because I'm like, oh, well, it's kind of just your choice, you know? Yeah. And you can't give them what you would do either. Yeah. No, it's sort of, it's, and the other thing is, you know, well, like as a surgeon, right? We only think of the bad stuff. Mm. We only remember the stuff usually that goes wrong, mm. right? So, like, 
as a surgeon, I'd very much not want a knee replacement, even though it's a very successful operation. I can only think of the bad stuff that happens, mm. even though 95 times out of 100, only good stuff happens, yeah, right? Yeah, so well. we've got a very biased view like you guys do. So yeah. it's actually not not actually that useful to know mm. what we would do because we, like, we've we got a very different opinion to what the average person would do. Probably yeah. just to my Achilles, a bit of dry needling, foam rolling and stretching could probably get me there. Yeah. <laughs> all right that was that was great so i did want to mention and i'm actually going to put a little bit at the start of this your youtube channel yes yes how best way to find people just to type in um put uh, actually, the best way? Find, no i don't think it's popular enough if you type in if you type in um you've got over 700 it's, subscribers you're a bit of an influencer i'm um, like 60 now right so all right. Um, yeah um so probably is a way to find it so mm. Actually, that's a tricky one actually because you even search it on youtube because it's called the foot and ankle orthopedic surgeon but if you, if you type that in you, you go through about 50 things before you actually find the channel yeah um if you go to my website it's probably the easiest way to find it um yeah. which is www.hunterfootandankle.com.au so and it's spelled a and d yeah um and then there's a little youtube um logo on when you snooze the website comes up and you just click on that and that should take you to yeah uh the youtube site People listening, it's great. And like good to send patients to as well. And it's not like, it's not you just sitting in front of the camera saying, this is what we do. This is what the evidence says. It's like interactive, there's pictures. It's just a lot easier to take in. And it's, yeah, it's good. Look, it's really good. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really want it to be about me. It's more, I mean, the other thing is, is it, there's, there's plenty of um, uh, ethical restrictions in terms of what sort yeah. of information yeah. we should be providing. So I, try, I very much try and go middle of the line Mm. Um, when I can so I, I can't really commit to much one way or the other most things but it's more just to give people an idea of what's involved in certain injuries and, mm. and for clinicians also to, to have something to go back over so because like I said the biggest thing in a consult is that most patients will forget mm. what you said when you walk out so it's, it's realistically it's more for patients so patients obviously find it useful but it's aimed at Mm. patients themselves things like ankle fusions people don't know much about it people think a subtalar fusion is the same as an ankle fusion and those yeah. sorts of things yeah um yeah. so it's just trying to it's trying to make it as simple as possible mm. um i've got to be honest it helps me explain things as well trying to put them in the video you've got to try and be as simple as possible yeah um, so yeah. that people understand it so it's great for me then to then extrapolate that when i'm actually seeing patients in real life yeah, and so, you can really hash it out the way that you would explain it to your patients. I think it just makes you better at it when it's like real life. Oh, absolutely. I imagine you guys find that with your podcasts, right? Like yeah. It's, yeah, it's, uh, and, and it makes you look things up as well. I can't say mm. that everything in those videos I knew straight away before I put mm. it in the video, mm. uh, like particularly some of the return to play stuff. Like, mm. it, like um, that's, that's stuff that I've found that's useful, but it's not widely known. And, and you get that heaps, Kelly, people will be saying, well, when am I going to get back to playing with... You know, ankle sprains, syndesmosis injury, all that sort of stuff. There's actually some data out there now that says when people will be getting back, and you say, "Well, look, this is what this is what happens in an athlete." Yeah, you're not you're not playing for the you know you're not playing for Barcelona, and they're getting physio around the clock, so you might be a bit later than that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so most of our our listeners, I think it's maybe seventy eight percent are in Sydney, Newcastle, yeah, right. or I guess East Coast, I guess um maybe i think maybe that's just on spotify but to, yeah. to, if someone wanted to to consult or have i guess to get an opinion from you it's it's best to go through the gp and then just as usual gp oh uh, yeah i think so i mean um i, I tend to recommend i mean I, look i get i get plenty of referrals from allied health so mm. physios and podiatrists 
um, which is fantastic. Like I, I do say to the physios in particular, I say, look, they're the people who are going to pick up things like syndesmosis injuries. So I'm going to say like 90% of the syndesmosis injury referrals I get from physios. Mm-hmm. It's always good to have the GP. The GP always in the loop because the GP yeah. has a good understanding of the background history of the patient. Yeah. So I, I tend to recommend that. Certainly I can give an opinion without that, but it's mm. it's beneficial to have the GP involved. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so don't just message you on Instagram and say, hey, can you fix this? Uh, yeah, I try not to do that. I just, you know, I can imagine a, you would, whole, yeah. There's a whole, um, that's, yeah, that's that's going to get a whole world of pain for everybody if I start. Um, yeah, and like I can see the YouTube comments and like, hey, I've got this, the tiniest little sentence, what what do I do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got those. I'm going to say, I don't, I'm not, like, this is where I can't be an influencer, right? Like, I can't, I can't answer comments on medical stuff online. Like, I just can't be that guy. Like, no. I didn't start it to do that. I um I literally yeah. put those videos on YouTube so I could store them somewhere so I could have them on my website, right? Yeah. And then I always noticed that, and then I noticed there's a subscribe option. Mm. And all of a sudden we've got all these subscribers, um, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, but uh, it's more it's more an explanation thing for patients. But the good thing is it's motivating, like you guys have found the podcast, is it? Mm. Yeah, it's great. You get a good response from people, you you then want to do more, right? Mm. So mm. You say it helps. So. No, it's good. Yeah. All right. Mate, thank That's you so awesome. much for, for coming on. Enjoy Thanks, guys. Your, Thanks so much um, for having me. Yeah, Sunday afternoon. And um, um, I'm do. sure we'll see you very soon. Excellent. Thanks, apes. See ya.